The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Some of his disciples were remarking how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. In Exodus 32, the people of Israel, after having been released from slavery in Egypt through many signs and wonders, and after wandering for a time in the wilderness, find themselves at Mount Sinai at the mountain of God's presence where there is fire and smoke and a terrible darkness. The place where Moses goes up and meets with God to receive the law for his people. While Moses was on the mountain talking with the Lord, the people grew restless and they went to Moses' brother Aaron. And they said, we don't know what's happened to, uh, what's his name? He's just been gone for so long, this guy Moses. So you, make us some gods that will go before us. Aaron tells the people to bring together all their gold, and he melts it down and fashions an idol in the shape of a calf and declares to the people, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then we're told that he then built an altar in front of the calf and said, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. This story has fascinated me for some time because at first glance, it seems as if the people are simply leaving Yahweh behind, that they are choosing to worship completely different gods, some sort of idolatry, that they're choosing idols over him. 
But it's actually a bit more complex than that, as you can see in the words of Aaron. In their own minds, they weren't getting rid of Yahweh. They were simply making him a bit shinier, giving him more definition, making him more manageable. Aaron doesn't say, tomorrow there will be a festival to someone totally different. Right? He's hammering down the true God into something manageable for the people. Rather than attending to God's actual word and what he says about himself, the people decided they could figure it out well enough on their own. And of course, if you know the story, it ends in disaster for the people. We're living in tumultuous times, are we not? Many of us have grown up in or around a Christianity that is very much golden calf religion. American civil religion pretends that Jesus is Lord. But even while giving lip service to that idea, it has instead built an altar to something shinier, something more tangible, something more manageable something that requires far less of its followers, or so it would seem. This golden calf religion has conflated Americans with God's people. If you hear Christian leaders and various pastors talking, it almost sounds like you can place America anywhere you read Israel or the church. I'm sorry to tell you, Americans are not God's people any more than Palestinians are, or North Koreans, or Sudanese, or the Chinook tribes, or yes, even Canadians, okay? So before we jump into our gospel texts for the evening, I want us to try to realize how much of our imagination of Christianity has actually been captured by golden calf religion. This religion tells us that suffering is to be avoided, that money is where we find security and happiness, that our sexuality defines us, and that if commitment stands in the way of self-expression, we should abandon commitment. It tells us that people who think differently than us are either demons or imbeciles. It is a religion designed to convince fearful and anxious people that they will be comforted, comforted and empowered here. But rather than deliver on that promise, it actually feeds more fear, more anxiety, more hatred. With that in the background, in Luke 21, Jesus and his followers have entered Jerusalem. The ministry of Jesus has sort of, if you follow the geography, it, it almost works like a spiral around the land of Israel, and he is just circling closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to death, and now they're there. They're in the city. In a few days, it will be Passover, and he will share one last meal with his followers before he is crucified. But for now, the disciples start talking about the beauty of the temple. I mean, this thing would take your breath away. And Jesus responds by telling them of what destruction awaits. His language is apocalyptic. If we were to keep reading in Luke 21, you would see that 
Some of it seems to describe events that have yet to happen even in, in our position in history. Something that will happen at the very end of time. But much of what he warns his followers about is a prediction of the fall of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. The future Roman emperor Titus led a siege in the late 60s against the city of Jerusalem. He was so successful, by the way, in destroying Jerusalem that he actually took the proceeds from everything that he destroyed and built the Colosseum. If you've been to Rome, that big arch that you pass through is a symbol to the death and destruction that he wreaked upon God's people. Factions of zealots within Jerusalem rose up. Some of their leaders claimed to be the Messiah, just as Jesus said they might. They ended up fighting amongst themselves. The city began to starve. Cannibalism and unspeakable things people were doing just to survive. In the end, we're told by Josephus, the ancient historian, that he estimates that over one million people died, which is a number that, that modern historians find could, could not possibly be true because there probably weren't that many people in all of Israel at the time. But I think you get the point. Nearly everybody died. We're told that the Romans crucified everyone they could until they literally ran out of wood for crosses. The temple was filled with corpses and the blood of the dead was streaming out of the sanctuary. And in the midst of all of this tumult that Jesus is describing and predicting and prophesying, he tells his followers what they can expect, more specifically, will come their way for following him. They'll be dragged before kings and governors for his sake. They'll have hands laid on them. Persecution will rise up against them. They'll be thrown in prison. They will be rejected and handed over, even by parents and sisters and brothers and friends, delivering them up to be tortured and even killed for following Jesus as the world's true Lord. In fact, many of the people who were there who heard these words from the mouth of Christ were killed. They were tortured. They were pelted with rocks until their flesh peeled back from their bones. Their arms and legs were ripped off in the mouths of wild beasts. They were nailed to crosses and hung upside down. This is the heritage of the church. As Tertullian said, just 150 years after Jesus spoke these words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is how the church gets built. In other words. Now I want us to look at three of the things that Jesus has to say in the midst of this sobering prophecy of what awaits his followers and try to understand what those three things that he's telling them mean for us today. The first thing he says is in response to his followers asking, when is all of this going to happen? And Jesus responds, see that you are not deceived. See that you are not led astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, where the time has come. Do not go after them. Over the centuries, there have been many who have come in and sown deception in the church. They are with us to this day. 
claiming the name of Christ, but declaring things contrary to him. They're claiming to be celebrating a festival to Yahweh, the true Lord, but all the while they are building altars to golden calves. And I think the question that is a little bit unnerving that all of us should be asking is, how are you supposed to tell the difference? How are you supposed to know? How do you stay watchful so that you are not deceived and led astray? Well, I would suggest to you that if you are not spending time in Scripture and in prayer, in the community of the apostolic church, of the church Catholic, the church that has held on to the apostolic faith and handed it down as it is witnessed to in Scripture, if you're not spending time there, you will not be able to tell the difference between the voice of the true shepherd and the voice of con men. The voice of God speaks in his word and in his church. If you want to know his voice, you have to spend time there. Do you see the implicit warning in Christ's words here? It requires watchfulness not to be led astray. So let me be totally clear. We are, all of us, ingesting American civil religion all the time. It's in the air that we breathe. We have become so used to it, we don't even see it. There's no avoiding it. But if you are in Christ, you have been given the Spirit who will lead you into all truth. You have been given Scripture which points to the Word made flesh, and you have been deposited into the church which, as Paul tells Timothy, is the household of God and the pillar and foundation of the truth. If you are going to stand watchful to be able to recognize the false Christs, the golden calves and idolatries of our age, you must be rooted in Christ, fed by his word and sacraments in his church. I mean, you know what I'm going to say, right? We have to be apostolic people. We have to be people who are rooted in apostolic Christianity, in the message that has been handed down over time and is declared in the scriptures. The second thing that Jesus tells his followers is that all of this persecution and horror that is coming their way on account of following him is their opportunity to bear witness. Being reviled by friends and family, being betrayed by them and getting thrown into prison, getting hauled in front of powerful men who are self-important to stand trial will be your opportunity to bear witness, he says. And of course, the question should be, bear witness to what? If you read the sermons and the speeches in the book of Acts, you'll know it's to bear witness to the death and resurrection of Christ as signals that the entire world is under his lordship. It's not just that he died and rose again, it's that that proves that he is the world's true lord and true king. That in his resurrection, God has declared to all people that everyone will be judged with equity. The rich won't be able to buy themselves off. The powerful will not be able to negotiate. No, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. Do you see that even, or perhaps especially, if you're a follower of Christ, when your rights are being trampled, that that is an opportunity for you to bear witness? And of course, if that's true, then even when your rights aren't being trampled, but you see someone else whose rights are being trampled, that too is a moment for you to bear witness, to stand into the gap and defend the fatherless and the widow and the weak and the foreigner, just as God himself would do. You either believe that Jesus is the true Lord and King of this world and that he is the only one who has the power to bring light and peace and redemption to the hideous darkness and chaos, or you don't. Those are the choices. But if you do believe it, then what he is telling you now is that no matter what comes, you can view everything as an opportunity to bear witness to him. So you know what I'm going to say, right? We've got to be gospel people. We have to be people who see everything as an opportunity to bear witness to the fact that Christ died for the sake of the world and rose again in power. Otherwise, we're just building our own kingdoms and trying to make ourselves feel better. The third thing that Jesus tells his followers is stand firm and you will win life. Or what other translations say, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Endurance is not acquiescence. It is not a passive throwing up of the hands and saying none of it matters. It's not nihilism, right? We believe in nothing, Lebowski. Okay? It's not nihilism. It's an active stance of hope. It is engaging everything in your core in hope and ultimately in the hope of life after death. Did you catch that hilarious little line right before this one where Jesus says, all this bad stuff is going to happen. And by the way, even your friends and your parents and your brothers and your sisters are going to betray you and you're going to get thrown in jail. And he says, some of you they will put to death. And he says a little something else. And then he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Huh? Some of you will be put to death, but your hair will be perfect. So is that what he means? No. He's riffing on the psalmist's idea of resurrection and God's faithfulness. You will not let your Holy One see corruption, as the psalmist says. Even if they kill you, they can't actually harm you in the realest sense, because you will be given the crown of life if you endure. But the crown of life is given in endurance. So you know what I'm going to say, right? We have to be sacramental people and eschatological people. Sacramental meaning that when we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death. When we come and feast at his table, we are eating and drinking his death. The entirety of the Christian life is the life of death to self and carrying our cross and following Christ 
All of that is a sacramental participation in his suffering and death on the cross. We have to be sacramental people. We have to understand that when you suffer for the sake of Christ, it is not meaningless. You are actually becoming his fractured body. And in that sacramental participation, we are being pulled into the future, into the eschaton, into life after death. Because you, if you're in Christ, have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you have dwelling in you the same power that raised Christ from the dead. There is life after death. We have been dancing around these ideas for months now. So I'm just going to say it and say it and say it again. All of us are being crumpled by the vice grip of the world to fit the mold, to worship anything but the true God. Self, money, tribe, the American dream, whatever. And we are living in a time of increasing fear and ugliness and despondency and anger. And the problem is that we can tell ourselves that we've avoided the mold that the world is trying to force us into without realizing that we've not actually run to the place of Christ, but to a golden calf, another mold, just with golden edges. American civil religion wants you to choose left or right, and then to say, we on the right have no need of repentance. It's those people over there. Or if you're on the left, to say, we on the left have no need of repentance. It's those people over there. Or if we voted third party, we have no need of repentance. It's everybody else. But that's not the apostolic message. No, the apostolic message that we declare is the message that the Apostle Paul declared to the Athenians. The times of ignorance, he said, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You can't just say the words of the gospel and expect to be molded into Christ when the world is working on you 24-7 for that to not happen. If you can find time for Twitter and Facebook and CNN and HBO, but you can't find time to pray with God's people, If you can find time to read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but not God's Word. If you have time and money to put to use for yourself to make yourself richer, but don't have time or money to give to the worship of Christ, the Lamb who was slain, then when deceivers come, you will be led astray. When persecution comes, you will not bear witness. And if you are led astray and do not bear witness, then you will not endure.
Friends, following Christ is not easy, but it is worth it. And that is why in almost every book of the New Testament, the call is always to endure, 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 and you will be given the crown of life. I'm going to end this evening by reading the first chapter of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.